today our series, Transformed in Grace, and just to do a little bit of a re review, I did that by accident, uh, to do a little bit of a review, we started with uh, King David as he collected all his money for the temple, and remember his, kind of his phrase that sticks with us, and it's also the song during our offering, Who Am I? And he's saying, who am I that I get to gather these things to build God's temple? So he's this, this sense of humility, what gives me the right to stand before him? His own son repeated that, and I think it's something that we say, some, who, what gives me the right to be doing what I get to do? That's the attitude we have as we look at what God has given us. We talked about being transformed completely by God, and when you're transformed completely, that gives you an attitude of thankfulness. It gives you an attitude that says, I do not deserve these things I have this appreciation for what God has given me. So that's kind of what we covered last week. And the, this is a stewardship sermon, but we've talked as little about money as I've ever done in one sermon, I think, much less four sermons on stewardship. So we're kind of coming full circle and we're getting to where we're going today. Um, I want to talk about action today. Action's a common theme in the Bible. Is this a little bit loud? Can we turn it down just a little bit? Here's a picture I showed last year, but last year I wrote the sermon before I found out the result. This is Jeff Benrud. This is Pastor Spiegelberg's brother-in-law, if you do not know. He was Delta Force, and he was the one who went down into the pit who got Saddam Hussein. He's an unbelievable individual, and he's unbelievable endurance. So I look up to him. I'm not an endurance athlete. I should be because I'm skinny, but I'm, I'm not an endurance athlete. When we go run the boulder boulder with my wife, she is just warming up. She's like, oh, finally, I'm warmed up, and I'm just fading like right at that, it's like mile two, like my body is saying, what are you doing? And she's just warming up and she can just go, 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 go. Someone who can go forever is Jeff Benrood. He officially won. Last year, he had done the race, the Baja 1000. He did not win because of penalties. Uh, that's what it turns out. So the big banquet, they hold it. He doesn't even know until the next day. So he gets on a motorcycle and rides for 1,100 miles, the 50th anniversary of the Baja 1000. He wins by an uh, hour and a half. He wanted to make sure he won this year even if there were penalties, so he wins officially outright. They ride their motorcycle straight for over, I think it was 29 hours. Like, they don't sleep, they just go. And, and I think, wow, that's pretty impressive. And then Amy and I just drove back through the night, and um, <laughs> she's afraid I'm going to talk about the Verper story, which I just might do. Um, so, so, so this is, you ride through the night, and I am such a wimp that I cannot drive straight just with my family. You know, I've done it before, maybe in my youth. Jeff is 50 years old. I've done it maybe in my youth, but you know, you go and you're thinking, hey, I could do, I can drive all night. You start planning about what a hero you're going to be when you make it through the night, and then like 35 minutes later, you're like, whew, whew, and I start pulling leg, I got to wear shorts so I can pull leg hairs out. You know, I got to do all these things possible, and I'm like, okay, I got to, it's like the car reenactment, and I... Amy's afraid I'm going to share this story, but I'll just, Amy says, hey, Jared, you need a break. If you need one, um, you can take it. I wasn't even that tired at that moment. I'm like, you know what? I should sleep. That'll be great. Have you ever slept in the passenger car and you think that someone's about to kill you every 15 minutes? So you're just driving and you hear, what? And then she's like, it's fine. You, you need some rest. I'll just take over. I'm like, good. So then I'm like, just, it's like this. You just hit REM sleep. And so I finally, I may have lost my patience. I'm like, let me just drive for 35 minutes, and then I'll get tired, and you can drive. So we flip-flop at that point. But anyway, Jeff Benrood is one of my heroes because he could just go and go and go. He got interviewed by a motorcycle magazine. He said, I'm not the fastest. He said, I'm not the most technical, but I have the ability to just endure. And I, he makes me one of my heroes. One of my other heroes, um, you might recognize the ship here. This is from Ernest Shackleton, if you know his story. Early 1900s, they had already discovered the South Pole, but he went there. I can't think of what they were trying to do. It's like 1914. But he takes a ship there, and a ship gets trapped, 
and he and 20, I think it's 28 other guys, they're completely trapped, and the ship gets crushed by the ice flow, and so now he's these 28 guys in, this is the 1900s, like you don't have like your Gore-Tex suits on, and they take the rowboats or the, the safety boats, they go, I forgot how many hundred miles, he leaves the guys there because some are injured, he travels with five guys in, a, in like a safety boat, 800 miles, to go get help, and comes back, and not a single guy on his crew die. Like, that's kind of awesome. Like, this, these are my heroes. And you can see this, and the Bible talks the same way. Can you just pull, there'll be a black one, a slide, just pull up. This is going to be my background forever, so I appreciate Do you know how to do that or not? Well, I'll just read it. Yeah, perfect. So James chapter 1 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. There's a sense of action. You can look at a famous quote by JFK. As we express our gratitude, we must never forget that the highest appreciation is not to utter words, but to live by them. So my heroes, and if you ask my kid, what does dad respect? Dad respects work. I think they all know that. Dad expects hard work. I don't expect them to be the most gifted kid. I expect them to work. And they know, like, dad appreciates work a lot, like get off your butt and work. That's what dad would say. This is the opposite of that softball guy. So you don't, none of you know this individual, so don't try and figure out who this individual is. In, in Washington, we ran a softball tournament. We didn't have a big team, and someone said, hey, can I play on your team? I said, we could use someone on our team, and it's co-ed, so he came with his wife. So this is ideal, right? So they come and I have this interview process just while I'm trying to make the lineup, and I say, um, you know, what kind of position do you play? Most guys who are good would be like, yeah, anywhere, but, you know, I prefer infield. I prefer outfield. He goes, I'm really fast, so put me at center. I'm like, wow, okay. Center field, there we go. Um, and then I said, what kind of hitter are you? Now, most guys who are good, this is, if you ever get interviewed in this way, and you say, ah, you know, double singles, you know, if I get the right pitch, Sometimes they can hit a long ball. I mean, and this is guys I know that hit it out, like, if they wanted 75% of the time. They'd be like, yeah, if I get the right pitch, I could do it. He goes, I mostly hit home runs. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll put you at number four, all right? You know, scratch this guy. We'll put Dwayne. That was his name. I can still picture it. I'll put you at number four. And uh, that changed, though, because my last, uh, then he starts telling me about how the day before he was practicing, and he measured, he hit one. He went home and got his tape measure and measured how far he hit the ball. I said, Amy, this guy's going to be terrible. <laughs> like, no one measures their practice pit. You know, no one does that. So, and he was. For three games, I think he had two hits. He's in center field. He could get to the ball, but he couldn't catch the ball. You know, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is the worst. So my skin, I'm actually starting to shake because I get so mad. As a person who appreciates action, what you say you're going to do, do it. And this gets difficult in, in anyone, and I don't know if you're wired the same way. This is a big deal to me, and none of you, no one is surprised right now. There isn't anyone going like, what, really? No, I'm, this is how I'm wired, and I, this is a problem. This is a problem. This gets hard as we start to work with the, the property. So you talk with engineers, you talk with general contractors, you talk with people who come to do bids, and they, hey, I'll meet you there at 2. They don't show up at 2. There's so much business going on, and people are not doing what they say they're going to do. Someone said, I'll be there. They just don't even show up. And so you can imagine as someone who just says, I want you to do what you say you do. That's all I'm asking. You know, I don't need the fastest. I don't need the most tech. Just show up, all right, and just do it. What's that, 90% of life is showing up? I think it's 95% of life right now is just to show up. The opposite of this is if you got the pack in the mail and you got that USB drive. So I told you about this. This is Alfred. I think this is a computer program. This guy's unbelievable. And so I sent in, I said, hey, I'm interested in this. Can you send me a quote? He sends me a quote for like 12 different models and he next day airs the sample set. 
So when I got home the next day, the samples were there. I'm like, this is crazy. And then he followed up, I think, probably 20 times. Hey, did you get the samples? It shows that it was delivered. Yes, got the samples. Next day, did you like the samples? Anything I could do for you? I'm like, I'm not going to make a decision for like a month. Okay, a month later, three weeks later, hey, thinking about making a decision? I'm like, what is, this guy's crazy. And he, I get this stuff in the mail, and he's saying, hey, it shows that they're delivered. Did you get them? Do you like them? Are you 100% satisfied? I'm like, finally, I'm like, everything's good. We're good. We're good. You know, I'm like, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Uncle, uncle, that's all I want. So when you think about this action, that's the opposite. In our Christian life, God is calling for action. When I think of a parable about action, I think of the parable of the two crappy sons. Uh, What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not. And we're going to explain this in just a little bit. Um, He answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went out to the other son and said the same. Uh, He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? And I remember this as a kid. I remember thinking, they're both lousy. Like, these are the worst set of sons you'd ever want. You know, like, this is not good. But they answered the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent. And believe him. I would stop at that parable. We could talk it for a while, but you cannot understand this parable without the second parable. So we're going to read the second parable, which has a lot more depth. It involves a vineyard to explain what is happening in the first one. So listen to another parable Jesus says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. So there, this, he, all he is is an investor. So when you had money back then, you would just buy stuff, you'd set it up, and then you'd rent it. And the agreement was that the tenants would then farm the land, it's like grapes of wrath, and then you have to give stuff back. That's kind of how it works, sharecropping in a sense. I own the land, you do it, but I get money back as long as you're doing the work. So then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Now this is one of the weirder parables as a kid too. The tenants seized his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third dead. Then he sent the other servants to them more than the first time. So another a group comes and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance so that they, t- so they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Like This is one of the more sobering parables. Like, we're not just talking about, like, some guy's counting money or something like this. They're saying, Jesus is saying to this group of people, you have rejected not only the servants that I send, you've rejected my son, and you've killed him. And how does this all relate? In that time, I actually read somewhere that you, if you did not, or you could get out of paying rent for three years, you now took over the land. So if somehow they just sent you on your way, and you did the land, you took care of it, and they forgot about you, you now inherited it. So these guys are coming to this conclusion that they want the land. They want to be the landowners. Why would they want to be the landowner? You call the shots. I'm 42 years old, and uh, as of next month, I will, I've told you this before, as of next month, I will no longer owe my parents money, which is, and you're like, why do you owe your parents money at 42? It's because we slid out of our house in Seattle, like slid out of it. 
and we just got it, not enough for a down payment or anything like that. So then we got here, and we saved and saved and saved, but to buy a house, we needed a down payment, so my parents lent me money, and now I have to pay them back. You don't know how excited I am to not owe my parents money. This is a weird situation to be in as an adult man. You want to be on your own. This is not a pleasant thing. It says in the Proverbs, the uh, servant, the, the lender becomes the borrower becomes servant of the lender. This is not a good position to be in. So any of you who owe money, and it, it's just kind of a personality quirk perhaps, so we owed money for student loans. They, you pay the government, it's, I think it's like 0.1% or something. It's like 3%, but it's not very much. You said, you know what, I could just owe my government $125 till I die. But I'm like, I just don't want to owe people things. So we paid that off. You know, like this is our goal, get rid of this, get rid of these debts. Because none of us likes to be obligated. You give up control when you owe someone something. My hypothetical self is pretty amazing. I always get up early. This is my hypothetical self, right? I always get up early, and I always work out, and I always eat well. I don't owe anybody any money. I always work hard. I always show appreciation to my spouse. I'm always there for my kids. I read my Bible every day. I always you know, put all the best effort I can for sermons, and I always show up when a guy is going to give an estimate on time. Why is it that softball guy annoys me so much? I think because it is me, right? I mean, if I would say my hypothetical self, in reality, I'm closer to softball guy than I am the person who does it every time. And I don't know if you've ever felt that way. There's a frustration that people aren't doing what they say they're going to do. Why did these tenants want to kill someone because they wanted to be in control? Nietzsche, and we don't agree with Nietzsche, but Nietzsche says religion, like doing the right things, is really about control. It's how you control masses of people, religion. That's how we declaim it. But I think in an individual life, why is it that sometimes we do the things that we do because we want control? And there's a sense that if I do the right things, and if I, and if I live the religious life, and I give my money, and, I, and I'm kind, and I do these things, that God owes me, not the other way around. And instead, Jesus moves away from as Savior. That's the most uncomfortable feeling in the world. Grace is uncomfortable. We like Jesus as helper. We like Jesus as friend. We like Jesus as advisor and teacher. But when you say Jesus is my Savior, you give up control. Because there's a sense that if I do the right things, God owes me comfort. God owes me success. God owes me And so who do you think Jesus is talking to as we get back to this parable? He's not talking to the prostitutes, and he's not talking, he's talking to the people who have their life together. And you can take a look around and say, which category do we fit in? People that have their life together or the people who are just, can't even figure things out. And so to the people who have their, their life together, the religious people, Jesus said, I want to tell you a parable. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. And we're from, and this probably doesn't even look that weird, he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he said, I will not. Does this seem strange to you? We, we live in America, so it's probably not all that strange. You're like, okay, I could see that happening. But in most cultures, you do not, you grovel, and there's all kinds of respect. If you're from like a, uh, an Asian culture, you're from somebody, there's a whole lot of respect that goes on to your elders. And you, they say something, you say, yes, sir, no, sir. Um, even in the South, they do that. He doesn't even add a sir to it. He's just like, you know, I'm not going to do it. And, but later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the other son. So this is probably the older son because um, the reason he had to ask his kids to work anyway, this is that same, this is how you understand it, is the sons don't have to work the vineyard. 
Like they, the dad had enough money that he rented this stuff out. The sons are learning how to find other property, invest in other property. They don't work. You know, they invest. And suddenly he goes to the younger son, hey, I want you to work today. And the son's like, I don't think so. <laughs> right? And the dad's like, all right, now I've got to go to my older son. So he goes to the older son. And the son, listen to the respect he has. The, the father went to the other son and he said the same. He answered, I will Sir, like he's doing like all the right things. This is the son who does everything right. And I don't know which part in your family you fit. Are you the younger son that colors outside the lines? Like they're like, hey, make a monster and you draw a truck. You're like, okay, great. It's a good truck, but that's not what I asked you to do. Or are you the one that always did what your parents asked you to do? So to the one who always asked, who always does what his parents says, he says, I will, but he doesn't go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered, and Jesus said, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you to these religious people. That's what he says. And they're probably thinking, what, what are you talking about? For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. The tax collectors and the prostitutes did, and even after you saw this, you did not repent. What would be your response? If I'm one of these religious people, I'm like, I think they need to repent. I mean, prostitutes, we all know what a prostitute is. We all know what a tax collector is. But basically, the tax collector collaborates with the government. And so I think we have something here for liberals people, and we have people on the conservative end. Liberal people may be like, hey, we've got to reach out to the people who are marginalized, who actually have to sell their body for something. You know, who's the real problem is corporate America, who that would actually probably fit closer to the tax collectors. There might be conservative people who said, yeah, that's what that has to happen, but you look down on the prostitutes. I think we have, no matter what your political leanings, you have someone for each category. And God pulls this out and says, what's the problem? They say that the prostitutes should repent. They say the tax collectors repent. Jesus says, you don't get it. Grace is offensive. And to repent is what the younger son did. It's literally, it says it changes mind. The word there is literally repent. He said, Dad, I'm not going to go. I'm going to go my own way, tax collector, prostitute. I'm going to do my own thing, but then repents. And Jesus says, when it comes down to salvation, do you know what matters? It does not matter your track record. It doesn't matter the things you've done. It doesn't matter if you go to church every Sunday or if you give X amount of money. What really matters is your relationship with the cross. That's what matters. So it doesn't matter where your background is. It doesn't matter how you stand. The understanding of this parable is that forgiveness only comes through Christ and you have to give up control and none of us like it. You know why we don't like it? You know why I hate grace? I'll tell you, I was reading a fantasy novel. Someone told me to read these fantasy novels called Red Rising. Has anyone read this? Good, then if I get facts wrong, no one will be mad at me. It's <laughs> Red Rising, this, this guy kind of, he's the Reds. It's this colony of people, and he takes over, and he takes over. The golds are the high status. He's the lowest status, and he slowly kind of takes over, and he starts leading kind of the world, and he goes to each group of people, and he'd come onto a ship, and most people, the golds, would just obliterate everybody and had just have death in their wake, and instead he does not kill them, and so now there's this obligation to him, and that's kind of how grace is. I, grace is super hard because if, if I do my part, God owes me a certain thing. If I do my part, I still have some sense of control. There's some sense of what God can ask of me. Like I go to the grocery store and I pay my money. There's an obligation. They owe me. Grace means that you had no chance to stand before God. 
Grace means that you are no better than tax collectors or sinners or the religious people. That, that grace means you look yourself in the mirror and say, there, I've got nothing to bring before God. What can God ask of you? There's no limit. I'll say that one more time. If your life is truly dependent on grace, you might say, hey, I worked my hands and I did all these things and that's what we looked at last week in Deuteronomy. If it's really up to you and your ability, but just think about your birth. What kind of circumstances were you born into that allow you to be as successful as you are today? What if you were born in Saskatchewan a thousand years before Jesus came? Would you be as successful as you are today? Or were you born into a family where your parents understood education? Were you born into a family that when you needed help, they could help you out? Were you born into a place like here? where th- Even our existence is completely built on grace, and when you have grace, you give up control, and when your life is totally dependent on grace, there is no limit to what someone can ask you. You can't just say, God, I'm going to totally commit myself just because you're so great. You can't, it's not going to work. The only way you can fully understand what God asks of us when he says, put your life into action, the only way you can comprehend that is the cross. I've got nothing. My stuff is God's. My job is from God. My money is from God. My kids, they're from God. This position where I live right now, it's from God. Only in that state can you take a look at the things and it changes two things. You have a deep security. And we're, we're so insecure that we're trying to gather up things so that we have significance. We're, we have a deep security. If I say to my wife or she asks me, Jared, why do you love me? How would she feel? Like, think about the pressure of this. If I said, oh, I can give you lots of reasons. You're hot. Uh, you've got a good job, so it's got a good pension. You're good to the kids. And it... Think of the pressure. Could you imagine that? What if she said that same thing to me? Well, you're pretty fit. And like, yeah, but two years from now, I might not be fit. I might not look like an endurance athlete who wants to be strong. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, you know, what happens? She says, hey, we got a great house. How would that feel if suddenly we lose our house? She says, you got a good job. What happens if I lose my job? And I can't talk anymore, and I can't, be, I can't have this job. Like, then what? There's no security in that kind of relationship. There's security if I say to her, that's the environment I heard someone say. That's the environment I fell in love with you, but that doesn't matter. I love you because I love you. Doesn't matter. All the other stuff doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you look like. Doesn't matter how mobile you are. Doesn't matter what kind of job you have. Doesn't matter. Think of the security you have. It does not matter who, all that other stuff doesn't matter. When God looks at you and you say, God, why do you love me? Does God say, well, you got a pretty good job. Actually, you gave $10,000 to church, that helps a lot, right? I mean, it doesn't matter to God. God says, that's the environment you're in. I love you because I love you. So only in this deep security does it change the way that you look at all your other stuff, all your other possessions, all the things you have. And when you talk about money and Here's a stewardship, last thing. When you take a look at your money as we get ready to give for a building fund and we evaluate what God has given us, only in that deep security can you go, you know what, I don't need this money to be significant with the world. I don't need this money to be important. I don't need this money to have value. I just don't need it because God has given me value. So when you have a deep security in Christ, 
You look to the cross and you say, that, who am I to stand before here? You look at the offensiveness of grace and when God gives you your stuff, you say, all I am is a tenant. You know, I can't take that over. Only then does it transform how you look at all your stuff. And that's, that's what God is asking you to do, to transform how you look at stuff. This is not how you get significant. You already are. Amen. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, grace is so offensive. It is so hard because we want to be in control. We want to know that you owe us and there's obligations that you should give us when we have done the right things. Grace says that we can't do it. And the only way we can comprehend that is look at your Son. We, We have nothing as we stand before you and only in Christ do we have forgiveness, do we have acceptance, do we have love. Help that transform the way that we look at our family our stuff, our possessions, power, money, sex, everything in our whole life. Help it change how we look at it and help us not just know what's supposed to happen, but